Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Hat Track Heroes. My name is Nick and I'm your host for the show and today we are chatting with Rando based in the UK and just um, apologies to Rando because he's um, got a bit of hay fever so if we hear some sniffing and so forth, don't worry, <laughs> it's all good and don't worry Rando, if you do want to sneeze, that, that kind of thing, go for it. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nick. How are you today, besides the uh, fever? <laughs> all good. Came, came off a trip yesterday, but had some rest, so good to go now. Okay, good, good. Where did you come from? At Seattle. Oh, how was it? 20 passengers on a flight, you know. Oh, not tough. I know, <laughs> crazy. Easy, easy, uh, it's easy at the moment, huh? Shouldn't, well, we'll complain again when they're full. Oh, I know, of course we will. Yeah. And did you manage to do anything while you were there, or you have to stay in your hotel room? No, no, we could go out. Oh, in nice. the US, life is pretty much normal. Perfect. I love those yeah. shops. <laughs> so, so I know. Actually, going to the shops was nice. Yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> it's a bit of, bit of freedom, hey? Now, um, can you give us a small introduction just about yourself, like uh, what you do actually as your job, you know, where you're from, etc.? Okay. I won't say who I work for, but, you know, large British airline. I've been flying for them for 24 years, um, 43 years old, and I divide my life between London and Athens. I am a dual German-British national. I have lived in Spain, Germany, Switzerland, and mo most of my life in the UK. Mm -hmm. So consider myself pretty much European. Right, okay. And yeah. so flying is your day-to-day -day thing. Do you, what's your pastime? Besides what we're going to chat about, anything else that you get up to? Uh, very little, actually, to be honest, because my, my, you know, my, my, second, my, my, main, my main pastime is taking up a lot of the time. Yeah, okay, okay. So these days, it's like, you know, if I can squeeze in a workout, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I got, you. I got you. I was meant to do a workout this morning, but that didn't happen. Uh, oh, yeah. Again, you've got your open gym, so let's not go there. Yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Don't rub it in. So today, I'm gonna, this afternoon, after the interview, I'm going to go for a coffee in the coffee shop. I'm going to go and just go for a walk outside. You know how it is. <laughs> and I know I shouldn't use those words on here, so I won't say anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, you gave me a bit of info the other day when we first had a quick chat into what you do besides the day-to-day -day job that you do, etc. Can you give our listeners um, a small idea about what you do like I guess the name of the of your your organization where it's based and um, who you're helping okay let's give this a try. yeah I set up a small grassroots group called one human race uh, in 2015-16 and is mainly it's to so support refugees it's all over Europe to be honest we've done work all over Europe but mainly based in Greece and Athens mm -hmm. and um, yeah that's it to be honest but also with a what the title implies, one human race, you know, if there's anyone, it doesn't matter who at the end of the day, we're focused on refugees, but we've helped homeless people. It's, you know, it, the emphasis is on, it doesn't matter who it's one human race. Right, so that's, okay. Just but that. the emphasis on, on refugee support. Yeah. Okay. Giving people a chance and um, helping yeah. them out if they're down in the dumps, that kind of thing as well. And yep. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Now, is there some kind of history in your life that uh, gives you the the drive or gave you the drive or the encouragement to start what you started and, and being involved with something like this? To be honest, not, not direct, you know, but when the crisis started the, in, in full in 2015, I had this, to me it was like history repeating itself, having German heritage, it was, you know, what happened to the Jews in, in, in during the Second World War, not just yeah. the Jews, but many other persecuted people then, you know, we didn't help then, it, no one helped then. We saw what happened, and it had a very, it was a very, um, like a history repeating itself moment for me. Right. When I saw these images on TV, and you know, started following it, that's kind of, 
and I didn't want to be I didn't want to be like my grandparents saying I didn't do anything or or even worse. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Like mm -hmm. this epiphany kind of thing that sort of hit. You. Yeah. Yeah. I guess starting a charity is is a big deal. Not compared to I guess becoming involved in a charity, starting one is a big deal. So it must have been a brave thing for you to think. Okay. No, I'm going to do this. Yeah, it didn't really happen like that, to be honest. Um, no? Maybe if I do, um, I'll give a quick timeline of what happened back in 2015. Yeah. Like I, like I said, um, I was in, um, I, I watched it on TV. Actually, I was in a, in a holiday in the south of France. And by chance, I met all these Syrians who were literally camped out on the street in Nice and um, started talking to them. And, you know, then all the summer of 2015, it stayed on my mind and the news was getting more and more. And then, you know, pictures of, you know, thousands of people walking across Europe. And then actually an Australian friend of mine, he posted in September on Facebook, traveling around Serbia, ended up helping refugees at the border. So I messaged him going, what are you doing? You know, I want to get involved. And he gave me some contact details of this a volunteer, an American volunteer who was out there. I contacted her. She said, yeah, we need help. Come out. And I had some time off and um, I posted on Facebook but, um, that I'm going out to help refugees in Serbia. People contacted me saying, can we, help, can we donate some money? So whatever you're going to do out there, which hadn't even crossed my mind at this stage. Mm. And so, you know, I had like two and a half thousand pounds in my pocket overnight, basically. Right. And um, wow. flew out to Serbia. And then, um, yeah, so that was completely, everything was unplanned. Yeah. Helping in Serbia then. And then I moved, that was in September, October time. Then the whole crisis was actually mainly centered on the islands in Greece. A few months later, so I went out to Lesbos in November and January. Then, towards in February or March time, they co Europe closed the borders, and 20,000 people were stuck on the northern border of Greece. So I went there, and then on my way, I was driving back to Athens to fly back to London. It was raining heavily, missed my flight, and then there were about 20,000 people in Athens in the port as well. Wow! So I stayed there. I said, you know, I'll come back here. This is the place. I had the best, you know. I can help the most here. So yeah. I came back the following month to Athens and that's kind of how it all, so I've kind of moved along with the crisis at the time and then, you know, found the place to help. But there was no, at this stage, there was no plan to set up any group organization. That was just a one person, a one man show at this stage still. Right, I see, I see. Okay. So quite, a, quite a big deal still, like you shifting yourself around and trying to balance that with your work. Uh, yeah, it was busy. It was a busy. It was a busy. It was a busy winter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, I guess being crew as well, it, it does benefit this in the sense of being able to travel freely. I guess at a very sort of you know, discounted price until enable you to help as much as you can. You know, using the trips for a positive purpose. It did help, and to be honest, there was also one of the um, a fairly high-ranking manager who was very supportive of the course and who, by chance, I was put in touch with. Um, she was extremely helpful up to the level where just before Christmas that there was help breaking out on the island in, in, in Lesbos. Mm. And I was, I was meant to go on a trip and my mind was just going, I need to be out there, I need to be out there. So I actually emailed her. She called me back and said, look, we're so short of crew. One more, one, one more doesn't matter. And she said, go. And she gave me time off. Mm. So there was, you know, which is pretty unheard of, to be honest. You know, so there was, there was, there was a lot of support from her. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that helped as well. Yeah, of course. I didn't expect that to be, to be honest, but it was because. Yeah, of course. Definitely. But at the beginning, especially, it was getting to me personally. I was like, what I was seeing and what was happening. You know, people getting off boats. Yeah. Um, and all this, it was like literally emotionally, it was, it was very hard to actually go back to work and work a first class cabin at the time. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, you know, my first trip back, when I first came back from Serbia, it was at Doha. So I was helping Arabs get off boats one end, and then I was in first class with, you know, about 
a tavern full of very wealthy Arabs. So it was a very the cult, you know, the um, the two the two two worlds colliding was pretty difficult at the time. Yeah. Okay. So you, you started off as as a, a one man show, as you as you mentioned. Yeah. But you you've taken it into a more of a team kind of thing. You've implemented it as more of a team kind of uh, show. How was it implementing your idea, uh, time wise, money wise, and uh, putting your abilities together? But to be perfectly honest. I've ne there was never a plan. Right. It was just like, which is, which took me, I think, considering the, the demographic was helping, it was very fluid. You know, the refugee crisis was very fluid. Nobody knew what's going to happen next. Nobody knew who, how many more people are coming, where people are going. So being able to, the fluidity of it all, I kept very flexible everything right. for the first two years, I would say, because okay. it was literally changing by the month. And then we were just like, independent volunteers working together. So there was, there was not a formal setup and there still isn't a formal setup because I never wanted the formal setup because no, okay. I've seen how NGOs, the formal setup hampers their ability to help. Yes. Yeah, so and it becomes like, so um, the grassroots, the emphasis on the grassroots is really important to me now as well. And yeah, also okay. a lot of people who, do, who donate prefer, these days prefer to do, donate to a grassroots without any overheads or salaries. Yeah, got you, got you the admin costs so, yeah. and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As soon as you start printing t-shirts and, and high, you know, with logos on it, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. Going to, you're going another level, you know, yeah, so it's it changes, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, people yeah. start to wonder where the money's actually going, why is it going to a t-shirt, yeah. why is it not going to... And you're spending more time, you know, thinking about the design of your, of your logo than what you're doing. Yeah, of course, of course, true. Yeah. Now, the people that you are that did join up with you, where did they come from? Were they just other crew or just people on the street that thought, okay, I need to join in with it. That was actually one of the most amazing things at the time. And um, actually, a book was just written about this called the, um, the New Internationalists, because at that time in Greece, it was literally people from all over the world, from Hong Kong to Australia, to Chile, to all over Europe, from wow. Eastern Europe, Western Europe. And wow. that was, a, was an amazing thing. Huh? Yeah. Were like, um, there was everyone. Huh? I, was, um, I remember where there was in, on the island, Lesbos, there were Israelis, right? right? Who just finished the army service. The, the contradiction of it was bizarre. <laughs> they were, they had obviously had the most amazing training, and they were literally taking you know Syrians off boats, and and you know working to and and that was just you know was amazing to see that you know yeah I bet yeah it just was literally and, yeah there was like you know middle class Swedish girls working with Greek anarchists everyone was like doing this together you know so it was really amazing now obviously when you first started when you first messaged your your Australian friend who then put you in front of contact with the the other girl, did you think, okay, I need to do some research into this, or was it just because of your your uh, family history? Um, no, there was, I literally, I didn't think. Just off the I was cuff. literally, Boom. it was because all summer long, it was on my mind, and yeah. I've been watching this and watching this, but I didn't know how to help. Yeah, so when, when this opportunity came, I just went, I'm going. Yeah, and yeah. I literally, you know, flew, flew out over. It was literally no planning. I, you know, booked a flight and hired a car in, in Belgrade, and that was it. Yeah. Okay. So you just followed your heart, followed your instincts, and um, yeah, went with, absolutely. The, went with the flow. Yeah. Was Serbia the hotspot at that point? It was all all along the Balkans, to be honest. Right. But, um, okay. Because I got the contact there, so it was mm. every single border crossing was a hotspot. Mm. We had, I think, while I was there, there were I think up to ten thousand people crossing a day. Wow. On this route, so yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, okay. It was okay. really crazy. Like that first time, the first because I arrived at night, and when light came up in the morning, 
and you know it was all foggy and you, I just saw people walking for like miles on end towards you which is like I never that's Im image I'll never I'll never forget yeah, bet. wow mm. that's yeah I can imagine the the site would have been quite uh, surreal yeah, yeah it's, that's the word surreal yeah yeah wow now being being cabin crew in the UK and and being based in London and obviously most of this happens in Athens and of course if you add in the whole um, uh, trouble we've got with restrictions to do with COVID. How are you managing to maintain your role within the organization, within one human race? Basically, um, at the, at the, usually until COVID, until COVID started, I was able to spend a week in Athens a month, which was perfect, which was oh, okay. absolutely fine, sometimes Great. a bit longer. Yeah. Then a few months I couldn't go at the beginning of last year. Then I was very lucky at the time that um, a friend of mine, she's Cypriot, and she was actually stuck in Athens herself. And then she said, look, I'll, I'll help you run things on the ground, which was really good at the time. Oh, perfect. And then in, during the summer, I could go myself. And by the time the next lockdown, the, you know, the, the autumn lockdowns were starting, I still managed to go to Athens every month until January. But also because I think everyone's used to lockdowns now. Yeah. So, you know, things are running them by themselves fairly, not by themselves, but fairly well. Mm. You know, it's, things, are going, things are going okay because the, the projects are actually mutual talk about in a minute they're currently set up in Athens they're running more or less by themselves right now yeah okay good good so it's really with a lot of time on a lot of time online on obviously yeah I was about know. to say a lot of mostly just your I mean admin kind of things in relation to just yeah. communication and so forth yeah but it's it, it's it's so far it's not impacting it too much and okay good but it's good. it's more the personal connection is that is, is after a few months that's the problem sometimes. When you've got your hands on, it makes you feel more productive and more, okay, things you, are happening and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know yeah. what you mean. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, it's, I'm quite impressed, though, going back a little bit. It's, I'm quite impressed that um, before COVID, you were getting one week a month to go there. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I know more or less. Four hours, four hours away, three hours away, I guess. Yeah, it's about a four hour flight. That's one of the problems. It's not like just going to, you know, France. just across. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, yeah. And there's not as many flights. But, um, no, that's been, you know, a bit of unpaid leave, bit of leave. Yeah, I see. Mix it together. So that's yeah. kind of, that's worked out quite well. Yeah, okay, okay. When you're, obviously you're being stuck in, in London mostly, uh, is there a team on the ground in Athens um, specifically helping you to do what they can? I've been really lucky just now. A friend of mine in London, he was, he's about six weeks ago, he asked me, he's, he doesn't work and he, um, he said, I'm going crazy. I need to do something. Have you got any idea how I can help you? And um, I said, look, the guys in, again, I'm walking ahead now about the project, but if you, someone to, to teach them English and actually to be there, you know, on the ground would be amazing if you mm. are prepared to, you know, go through it. And so he just said, look, I'll do it. And he just spent a month out there teaching three, four hours English a day to the different levels in, in the housing project I run. Okay. Again, going ahead of myself. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> we'll and, get to um, that. and so that's, you know, he's been there. Obviously, he's been, you know, he's been very helpful. Then I've got him. Um, quite a few local Greek friends as well, who, if I call them, they'll help with nice. any smaller, you know, I've got a lawyer, for example, she's really good, she's a very good friend, she will help with certain things. And then we have also some of refugees I used to help who actually got settled in Greece, who, mm -hmm. who are helping, if I pick up the phone, they'll do anything. And even the refugees I'm currently helping, you know, a lot of them are actually helping other refugees. Okay, so they all support each other so, kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite, um, you know, there's, there's no one actually officially based permanently, but there's a lot of people pulling together. If, if I, you know, if I, if I pick up the phone, someone will help. Yeah. Okay. So it's the, basically, mm. the um, 
what's that phrase? Is the many parts or I can't think of the phrase. Many um, parts yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Make a pie. Make a pet. Make a pie. No, um, I, I don't know. It's something like that. But I know so it, it's all the it, small bits are making a one whole. Yeah. Yeah, it's the grassroots. It's the idea of the whole grassroots, you know. Yeah, yes. you know, people helping people, all this kind of thing. And um, of course, sometimes you know, you you never know. It could there could be a moment when there's no one there to help, mm. which is the difference to you know, if you're paying staff or something. It's obviously you've got, you know, we, we are actually paying one la lady. She's an, uh, an, a young Afghan lady to run one of the projects, and she's a refugee herself. So we're paying her actually a salary, which okay. is her work. Yeah, and, um, sure. and, you know, of course, that, that makes it a bit more reliable because they say, no, 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 I know you're going to be there because you're paid staff. Yeah, okay. But to be honest, anyone, especially the refugees themselves, they will always help. Nice. Like, nice. There's, there's never a no, so. I guess their way to give back as well for, for what they yeah, do. Yeah, it, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, perfect. Now, um, you've touched on it a little bit with the housing project. Specifically, what is it you and your team are doing? Yeah, so um, about four years ago, I became really apparent that the one demographic of of refugees of the a subgroup within refugees single young men by themselves between 18 and 30 are the most neglected right no one cares basically like it's like oh you know they're strong they're young men they can do it no they don't need any help this was up to the level that i was driving along the beach on on less was in the greek island mm. and there was a group of young guys soaking wet and i was with actually a volunteer was in the car with me and I said, oh, look, let's pick up these guys and help them. And she goes, don't worry, they're young guys. I'm like, you know, what the hell? They're soaking wet, they're walking this way, why, you know what I mean? But mm. that's how, even, even in the volunteer world, the attitude towards single young men was, you know, they don't need help. And it's, it's the opposite is the case. It, hmm? I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I'm wondering why is it that is the... They're not considered vulnerable. That's strange, because they, they're probably the yeah. most vulnerable. I mean, you look at the, the whole thing these days with, you know, people... Young men, are, I suppose, are the most vulnerable in the sense of... Uh, of course, being exploited towards anything, you know what I mean? Yeah. In any own, all, I know, but um, like if I tried to look back at myself when I was 18, 19 years old, you know, how I would have coped, I can't, can't even, you know, imagine it, right? No, I see, I mean, I was naive, proper naive at that age, and uh, if I'd been stuck in that kind of situation, I probably wouldn't have known where to turn, not, not knowing what and, to and, do. And nobody, yeah, nobody does, because they've never done it before. You know, no yeah, one's done this before, it. right? So, I mean, we're supposed to have instincts yeah. and so forth, but these instincts don't necessarily yeah. come with this kind of a situation. It's very raw yeah, exactly. and very strange. And, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so basically with that in mind, I had the, um, the you know, I set up, um, I, I rented a flat. Just, you know, they needed four or five guys I knew, they needed somewhere to live. So I said, you know what, let's rent a flat in Athens. And that kind of evolved over the years. And now we've got, um, it's one very big flat, five bedroom flat, which is housing 15 guys. Wow. Um, cool. Mainly Syrian, but also two Palestinians and one Iraqi. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to keep it all Arab speaking because otherwise it would just get too, too complicated to manage, basically. Yeah, I see. Um, in an ideal world, I would have, you know, we'd have a Benetton advert, basically, we'd have everyone in there, but it's logistically not possible. So the uh, so that's the main project. So there's been housed nearly 200 guys by now in total. Wow. And uh, yeah, and this is just give people the you know if people don't have somewhere secure to live, how can they they can't restart their life? Yeah, I got you. And and families and stuff, they are more likely to get UN UNHCR EU funded flats in Greece. Right. Okay. You know, but single guys, no chance. So um, yeah, that's the main project. And then uh, last summer there were. We had a huge problem with actually Afghan families, homeless Afghan families as well. There was hundreds of them camped out on the square in Athens and no showers, no toilets. And I was like, on a small scale, what can you do to help? So we decided to rent a small flat. We found an, a sympathetic landlord 
And on the square, we rented this flat for women and children. Unfortunately, we could only do it for women and small children because yep. of capacity restraints right. to be able to shower and bath. Okay. So that's why we then we employed the young Afghan lady and she was you know, making appointments. And I think we've had about 2,000 people shower there by now. Oh, okay. Since wow. last summer. So, yeah. yeah. Nice. nice. So today. these are the two main projects. How long do these men or the boys, I guess you might call them, how long do they stay in this house for at any one time? So we've had, I would say the average is between six months, but probably a year would be the average. Okay. Some a much shorter time because they're traveling on to Northern Europe if they can. Right. In various ways. Others waiting for their asylum. There's loads of different scenarios. We had one guy, the longest, he stayed three and a half years because he got a scholarship at the American University in Athens. So who, which paid his university, but they didn't pay for housing or or living costs. I see, I see. So it, yeah. was very it was very difficult for him having to study and living with that many people. Yeah. But he stayed and then eventually they actually managed to set up a fund to, to house these guys as well near the university. Okay. But yeah, he was there for three and a half years and he's nearly finished his, university, his degree now. Oh, nice. And just on, on this, this guy, what's his plan once he's uh, done his university degree? Does he have a, a he must have a better outlook on, on life and what his uh, options are. Well, you would think really. so. You would think so. The problem is that he has a he has ref asylum status in Greece, which allows him to travel within Europe, for example. He gets a, a refugee travel document, but he can only work in Greece. Right. So, like, whereas you and I, if we have a university degree, we can be, you know, we can work all over the world then. Yeah. Whereas yeah. with the refugee travel document, you can only work in the country where you have. So it limits him, you know. Yeah, I got you. But, gotcha. but hopefully, hopefully he will, um, you know, he, he's a really, really bright kid and hopefully, and he actually taught himself Greek while he was studying, which the university failed to do as well. <laughs> so, oh, poof. seriously? Yeah, which is a bit, you know, because they just don't, you know, it's an American university, it's in English, and they, the thought was there to help mm. by offering these, these, these um, scholarships, but not the, you know, the finer details they didn't yeah, think okay. about. So, gotcha. yeah, but he actually, he actually taught himself Greek and, you know, so he can, oh, wow. hopefully he'll find a job. Clever guy. Yeah. That's mm. amazing. Uh, now, I guess most people, pretty much everyone, I would say, would know about the plight of these refugees having to travel from Middle East, Syria specifically. Uh, what is the situation? We know they obviously, their, their travel route is uh, Syria, uh, Greece or Turkey, then up through to yeah. uh, northern northern europe but so uh, why is this what what's the story behind this okay so i think syria is pretty much covered i think most people know you know syria is the obvious one isn't it you know yeah. civil war 10 years and even though it's not in the news much anymore the situation hasn't changed much right in in syria if the main reason the young for example the single guys they will get asylum in europe is because of forced conscription fighting for the government which is you know obviously a dictatorship and basically, if, you go in the, if you're in the army, your chances even now are dying at like, you know, 50-50 basically because it's very yeah, badly equipped. And also you're fighting for a regime you don't agree with. Yeah. Okay. You know, killing your own people, okay. which is, you know, when people say, why don't you fight? I've had this, many people ask me, why don't they stay and fight for their country? And go, there's nothing to fight for. It's not an, an invasion of another country or something. It's a civil war. Mm. And then you're fighting for a dictator or you have to choose to fight for, you know, an Islamic group or a ragtag these days of, of your militias. So it's not, it's not feasible. Yeah, and um, so these Syrians are still leaving the country because of that. The minute guys turn 18, they get, they get conscripted and, you know, the parents send them out. And then Afghanistan is another huge demographic, which again is pretty self-explanatory. It's been at war for 40 years and it's, 
like both countries are there's no economic refugees these are both they're, they're genuine you know there's no there's no doubt about it and they, they do get asylum in most countries in europe as well yeah but then there's also yemen we have people from yemen eritrea south sudan now more and more Igor from china the china oh, the, the Muslim. yes 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 yeah. and then iranians as well political political refugees from iran Mm -hmm. Again, so they're all pretty much self-explanatory and quite a few people from Congo as well, which most people don't know about, but I think Congo has more displaced people internally than any other country in the world. Wow. Then you do get, we do get a lot of Pakistanis, which the vast majority are economic migrants, young right. men, and they, they don't get asylum either anyway. They wouldn't get refugee status in Europe, okay. but, but you know, they've been coming that way to Europe for the last 50 years. And, and, you know, our workhorses basically in Greece, the whole, the agriculture in, is done by Pakistanis. So um, these are kind of the demographics. Um, there's one quick story I wanted to actually tell when people talk about economic migrants. Uh, when, why, do, why are they coming? I was even asking these Pakistani guys, why are you coming? Because you're living in squalor. Many of them are homeless in parks in Athens and stuff. I've, I've asked them, why are you, why are you coming over? You know? And they... I never really understood it myself. And then I met a young Pakistani guy who was working in a restaurant in Athens for one euro an hour, six wow. days a week, 12 hours, living above the restaurant with 20 people. And he was making, I think, yeah, 12 euros a day, basically. And he sent 10 of those back to Pakistan and his whole family could live off that. Oh, wow. And then you go, okay, you know why people are coming, basically. Yeah. So it yeah. kind of, that story really kind of, you know, kind of brought it home why people are coming yeah okay so it goes back mm. to the individual governments not taking care of their own really if you well, want to get into the depth of it if oh, oh i don't think uh, it's i think the whole world is how the world works isn't it yeah it's the whole system is probably wrong but we're not going to change that now overnight no, yeah. so, uh, so that's yeah. and that's why yeah, they're not going to stop coming either you know people are not going to stop migrating across yeah, the world, especially world. With, yeah of course well, and climate change and everything you know so mm. so I yep. guess this, this leads into the next question. Um, in your eyes, are they all genuine ref refugees? <laughs> yeah, I've kind of answered that, you know, yeah. I think with the previous one. Yeah, the, um, from certain countries, if you're from Syria, Afghanistan, and it's also, I think, not for us to decide in a way, because that's what the asylum services are for. Pakistanis, for example, are that they will never get asylum. So there's no, you know, this is not ours. This is the system wouldn't give them asylum if they ask for it. And um, I also feel it's not for me to decide if someone's yeah. genuine or not, yeah, in a way. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough, yeah. That's kind of, it's, um, you know, I've got my opinion, obviously. Yeah. And I will, if someone asks me and I say, what are my chances of getting asylum? And I look at it, I'm going, you have no chance. Or I say, you know, <laughs> you know, I will say, I will tell them, obviously. And they will, uh, also, that people won't lie. You know, if, if, if someone from Pakistan is not going to make up, or maybe they make up a story for the first five minutes and then I look at them and going, okay, let's start again. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then they go, yeah, okay, okay, that's not the real story. Yeah, so, okay. But it's not for me to... I don't feel it's my place to decide. Yeah, fair enough. But yeah. I, what about the people that are, you know, uh, the Greeks, the Athens locals? What are their mm. opinions when they come to the square or they see these Oof. refugees around? Are they angry? Are they helpful? Are they accepting? What's the general reaction of them? All of, all of the above. <laughs> so um, okay. basically Greeks, like something I've discovered over the last five years and it fascinates me, it's the most extreme country in the world. The Greeks, you, you know, emotions are, everything is, you know, you know how they feel. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. it, and also they're somewhere stuck between Europe and the Middle East, you know, their mentality, like Syrians and Greeks are so similar. It's not, you know, they're identical if it wasn't for the religion, probably. So the, to kind of go down, the authorities and the, the Greek police are horrendous. 
But even the, the Greeks themselves, they're, they're, they're scared of the police and have been for many years. Yeah. So that's kind of the law unto themselves. I you know, myself have been arrested with no reason a few times. Oh, wow. I mean, I wasn't, and I wasn't even allowed to call a lawyer. So, um, you know, yeah, so that's, you know, this is, but this is, this has been like for a long, long time because... Can you tell us a story uh, of that? <laughs> the, the main one, yeah, I was um, literally, I was in Patra, which is a poor town in the west of Greece, where the ferries to Italy go. So a lot of um, young Afghan guys, especially, they try to get out of Greece that way. Yeah. And um, I was, I had two Syrian guys came with me from Athens just to help me. We were driving there for the day and the police got some tip off because there was, there was huge trouble in the afternoon in these squats where these guys are living. I didn't know any of this, but I was nowhere. But they had the wrong tip off, basically. Mm. That there was this big new people smuggler in town with a white car from Athens. So suddenly we had six police cars pull up next to us. TV st the TV cameras were even there. So because they thought they made the big catch, you know. Yeah. And we, all got, we got arrested. These two guys, young Syrian guys, 118, 121. They were put into a big cell. I was kept outside. And then they asked, where's your passport? And they, when they found, they, they realized there was nothing. You know, yeah. they searched us. They, they, afterwards, I found out they interrogated these guys, tried to get information out of them, you know, tried to push them to say things. And then they kept, at the end, when they couldn't find anything, they're going, Where your, where's your passport? And I said, in Athens, I, I've got my ID, my driving license here. No, no, no. And I said, I'm a EU citizen. You know, that's all I need. No, you'll have to, we'll have to keep you here until your embassy is open. What? And this went on until about four or five in the morning. And then eventually, and I, I, try, I asked twice, can I call my lawyer? You're not under arrest. And I'm going, okay, so nothing I can do. Okay, oh, you haven't yeah. got my phone, you've got... Yeah. And this is how I was treated. So I know how refugees are being treated. With yeah, absolutely right. no... Yeah, of course. So that no was kind of... No dignity. Well, it's also the rule of law. And that's another thing why I think this is so important because we have certain laws regarding asylum and everything in Europe. Whether people agree or not is different, but these are our laws. Mm. And if they stop being respected, then we're going down that, you know, first they came for. That makes sense, you yeah, know. Yeah. Like, you know, the, for the weakest, if the law is not upheld anymore, then it goes down the chain quickly. That's kind of again historically speaking. Yeah. So that's the authorities, the locals. It's literally from absolute hate to being the most supportive people in the world. Like literally, that's everything. Huh. Like everywhere in the world, but with the Greeks, you really know because they they make it known how they feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, they, you know, they they can be amazing. It's normally the people who have the least themselves who help the most. Whereas the, the wealthy elite in Greece, they don't help their own needy, so they don't tend to help anyone else in general. Yeah, yeah, I got you. So it's it's obviously the the crisis in Greece is horrendous as well, the economic crisis for the last ten years. But then many do remember, you know, that there was historically speaking, I think three million Greeks were expelled from Turkey in 1922. They came as refugees into Greece, were treated themselves badly, and some of them do remember the family connection going, you know, these were my grandparents in the same situation. Even though we were Greeks, we were not welcome. And then there is the, politically as well, there is the big paranoia of, from the Ottoman days, from the occupation days, yeah. of the Muslim takeover and yes. the population exchange. That comes up a lot. And I'm going, my God, you're talking 1922, you know, you're like, my God, you know. Yeah, but that seems to be like a big, we, we don't understand. Because for two, yeah, okay. I guess it's the, the geographical location of the country and it's not exactly a huge country as well. Well, it's, it's a big country, but it's gotten, hasn't got the resources, yeah, I suppose. Okay. That's the, yeah, and the EU, is not, the EU is also not, you know, it should be a European problem, not a Greek problem. Mm. And that's, you know, that, that's, that's obviously, there's lots of politics behind all this. And, you know, they feel be left to, fend, to deal with this by themselves, which is not exactly true because they get billions every year from the EU too. You know, there's two sides to everything. Yes, the northern countries should take people in. 
yeah. rather than you know closing the border to Greece. But at the same time, money is being pumped to Greece, and there the money is not being used effectively. What would you say to someone though? That I mean, you've got your your opinion on on this. Yeah. And if you were to speak to someone who was like totally against it and didn't agree with what you were doing, what kind of things would you say to that person? Whether it was in the sense of trying to uh, impress your opinion on them, or just in the sense of your response. We'll be continuing our chat with Rando in next week's episode. Make sure you come back and join us to hear more about what Rando is doing with the refugee community. Thank you again. See you.